Let me invite you to turn to the very last book of the Old Testament. Finish up our study in the Minor Prophets this evening. Hope it's been a profitable study for you, as it has been for me. Seeing God's uh, judgment and His mercy, along with His call for repentance and renewal, obedience. We'll be in chapter 3. We'll go from verse 13 through the end of the book. As you know, at the site of the World Trade Center, they are now working on a new building called One World Trade uh, Center, or Freedom Tower, as it was formerly called. When it's finished, it will be 105 stories tall. It will be the tallest building in the United States with its, uh, its long... Uh, tower that goes up to the top that doesn't really have any floors on it, and it'll stand at 1,776 feet. The exterior of the building should be completed next year, and it'll be ready for occupancy in 2013. When we were there in August at the construction site, we peeked through the fences to try to see what was going on, and, and really it looked like a lot of chaos. There wasn't a whole lot of order, it seemed just a lot of uh, construction equipment and, and pieces of buildings all over the place. It, it looked like it was in total disarray. It's easy to look at something like that and, and think, you know, that's just a big piece of garbage and it's not going to amount to anything. It doesn't seem like anything's going to come out of this huge mess. Why do we have to endure, perhaps the buildings around are thinking, why do we have to endure all this loud noise and this eyesore but we can't judge the beauty of a building until it's finished. And we understand that when it comes to building and construction because we've seen buildings go up and we've seen what it looks like in the construction process. It is an ugly thing at times. And yet at the end, it usually turns out, unless you have some bizarre sort of architect, uh, it usually turns out as something beautiful, doesn't it? But but when it comes to the the seeming disarray that's happening in this life, we look at it and we think, what is ever going to come of this mess? How could this ever turn out to be beautiful? It looks like a big pile of chaos, this world that we live in. But our problem is that we've made a judgment on God's building before He's finished it. And this is the problem that we, we find here with Israel. They, they look at the circumstances around them, and they're not pretty. They're not beautiful. There seems like there's all sorts of injustices that are happening all around them. But God is showing them that His justice is not finally vindicated. The building is not complete until He is done with His job. So what they were required to do is not to worry, how are we going to get rid of this huge mess? How are we going to clean all this up? But, but just simply trust God that He had the end planned just as He had the beginning planned. And they were supposed to trust Him to do what He had promised. Let's begin reading with chapter 3 and verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against Me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? 
you have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His, his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God's building is not finished. God's justice will not be vindicated until final judgment. And at that time, His justice will be seen to be just. He has been just all this time, but we just don't see it very clearly. And so we're going to see this blurred line of distinction between the righteous and the wicked. We'll begin there in verses 13 through 15, and then we'll see God's answer for it in verses 14 through the end of chapter 4. The blurred line of distinction between the righteous and the wicked. They, their problem is that they think that there is that it is vain to serve God, that it is empty to serve God. And so, um, and so there, it seems to them as if God is being unjust, that, that there is some injustice that's going on with Him. And you notice the problem here, beginning in verse 13, God tells them the problem. Your words have been arrogant against Me. And like the other disputation speeches that we've looked at, the other five of them, they all begin with a question. Or they all begin with an assertion by God. For, the, for example, the first one says, I have loved you. And they all, res- all respond with the question, but how have you loved me? And this goes on through all these disputations. You see this here at the end of verse 13. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And then God explains. You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is, is it that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? The arrogance of their complaint is seen in verse 13. God says, It is arrogant to do what you are doing against Me. For you to complain is arrogant. It was arrogant because they believed that they were self-sufficient in some way. That, that if they would, would, would uh, right, take upon themselves the control of their history, they would have done it differently. And they, in that sense, they don't need God. So that's what complaining does for them. It shows them that they don't ultimately trust God. But if they would have known their history and if they would have known God's work dealings with other uh, their forefathers and so on, 
they would have recognized that all of the self-sufficiency in the world would not have accomplished their, their ancestors' exodus from Egypt. It would not have accomplished their exodus from the captivity. In fact, they needed a supernatural work of God. But some of them, even though they had experienced these things for themselves, and they had heard about these other things from their, from their family and from the Scriptures, they soon forgot God's grace and power. And how easy is it for us as believers to forget God's grace and power, to forget how God has worked before in our lives. And that's why we have often in the Psalms that, that we are to remember the things of the Lord and, and to recount those great works of God, not only in, in history with regard to the Scriptures, but also with regard to our own personal history. How has God worked in your life? And have you forgotten how He has worked in your life? It's good to recount some of those things. We can't, we can't forget. Just because, um, just because something bad has happened to us or something difficult is, has come into our lives doesn't mean that God has abandoned us like Israel has thought throughout this book. It seems as if you're not there, God. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that that He's waiting on us often to, to come back to Him, or He's simply just teaching us to, to be strong in our faith. And uh, so we should never forget what God has done in the past. And perhaps the greatest thing, not perhaps, but the actual greatest thing that has happened in your life, if you're a believer, is that Christ has saved you from the wrath of God. That you were hostile toward God. You were an enemy of God. You were dead in your sins, according to Ephesians 2, Titus 3. And yet God rescued you from that. He rescued you from yourself. Something that you could not do. So in that sense, we should remember what God has done. And never forget His great work in our life. And in that way, we will, we will be, uh, our, our complaining will be less frequent if at all. Their complaint is explained in verse 14. They, they say it, it, it seems as if serving God doesn't do any good. It is vain or vanity, I believe the word is used there. It is vain to serve God. They had longed to be redeemed by God. They were waiting for God to pour out His promises upon them and yet where was He? Where, where were all these promises that he, he was supposedly going to bring to them? That they had rebuilt the temple, and yet He was not there. Did, it, did God forget all the things that they had done? Notice the end of the verse, verse 14. And what profit is, is it that we have kept His charge? So they said, we have, we've done things for you. And then, and then the next phrase. And that we have walked around in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Did He not remember all the times that we had served Him? Did He not remember all the times that we came to church when it was a blizzard outside? No. Did God forget all those things that we've done for Him? But that wasn't the point. The point was that they, had, they were complaining about something and not trusting God. They were thinking that, that God's rewards were based solely on, on what they did not on God's grace, God's faithfulness to them. And what they should have done is simply stepped back and said, you know what, God has His timetable. It may not be my timetable, and everything that comes into my life is for a purpose. 
for a purpose to make me more like Him, in their case, and for us, like Jesus Christ. So they, the, their first complaint is that the righteous don't get rewarded. We are looking around at the people in our, in our society here, these people who are trying to serve God, and it, it seems like the righteous are not getting rewarded. That's why they're saying it is vain to serve God and there's no profit to, to follow your charge. It's, it's, it's no good to go about in mourning. So that's their first complaint. Their second complaint is found in verse 15. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Uh, blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Their second complaint is, is that the wicked don't go punished. So the righteous, they don't get rewarded, and the wicked don't get punished. Right? That's what he's saying there. We call the arrogant blessed. Not only do they not get punished, but they seem to be blessed. And, and they do this wickedness, the end of the verse says, and they even test God, which God abhors. They test God and, and they get away with it. So when we look at ourselves and all the things that we've been doing, it doesn't seem as if we're getting rewarded. We look at them, it doesn't seem like they're getting punished. So if that's the case, here's their point. Why serve you, God, if you're not going to reward us, if you're not going to punish the wicked who oppose you? I mean, this is a reversal of everything that you are about, God. And, and the sad thing is, is that, that those types of questions will not be answered in this lifetime. Um. We, we won't fully understand why the righteous are not immediately rewarded in this lifetime and why the wicked are not immediately punished as they should be. But if you think about your former life before you came to Christ, you should be thankful that God doesn't immediately punish the wicked. Amen. Because if He had, then we all would be spending an eternity in hell. And so he, he forbears. He, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. He, he is slow to, to, uh, to bring out judgment on his people. And, and really, this picture of God's justice, God's perfect justice, will not be seen until the final judgment. Until that day when, when God comes in perfect judgment on all people, then at that point, there will be a more accurate appraisal of, of moral worth. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 17. They have the same question earlier. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? From their view, it seems as if God enjoys or takes pleasure in the wicked. He doesn't punish them. And so what we have here is when we look at the righteous, what we want to see is we want to see the righteous on one side and the wicked on the other. And we want to see blessing poured down on the righteous and, and punishment poured down on the wicked. And if that ever happened, we would see this perfect line of distinction between who is righteous and who is wicked. But what the Scriptures teach is that will not happen in this lifetime. 
we will not be able to to see this line of distinction very clearly. It takes uh, it takes this act of judgment on God's part. Now that's not to say that we we don't have the discernment to be able to tell the difference between truth and error. But you understand my point. There there will always be this seeming inequity between rewards for righteous and and punishment for wicked because the 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 reign of God falls on the just and the unjust, does it not? If you're if you're a if you're a good farmer or if you're an evil God-hating farmer, the rain falls on your field just as well. God is merciful even to the wicked. So we see that that this line of distinction is is blurry. God God is going to encourage them, I think, and rebuke them here in verse 13 through the end of the book by saying that that final vindication, the the time which I will be justified in the sense that I will be seen to be just will not happen till the day of the Lord, till final judgment. And at that point, you will be able to distinguish between righteous and wicked. It will be clear to you. So, first of all, we want to look at... um, I'm sorry, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. I said 13. should be verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Um, We're back in chapter 3. First, we want to look at the responsibility of believers. The responsibility of believers. We see this in verse 16 and verse 4 of chapter 4. So let's look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. I think Malachi helps us to understand what the fear of the Lord is. He gives a couple of synonyms for these phrases. He says, to fear the Lord is, is, the, is to do what these people are doing at the end of verse 16. They esteem my name. They, they exalt my name. That is my reputation, what I represent. And also, verse 18, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. So it is the righteous who fear the Lord, and then between one who serves God. So fearing God is simply to esteem God's name, to to count Him as as just, as right, to be righteous, to serve Him as God. And God desires to have a group of people who will esteem His name. Now this is contrasted with the priests in chapter one and 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 throughout the rest of the book who who profaned God's name. They brought these weak sacrifices. You remember, uh, we'll bring the blind. Well, they were allowing them. The people were bringing the weak sacrifices, the blind, the lame, and so on. And God's saying, "Is that all I'm worth? Am I just worth your leftovers?" Uh, he he also rebuked them, as we saw the last two weeks with regard to their giving. But the purpose, I think, of this book is to remind them that that God was faithful to them, and that. Uh, as chapter 3 says, that I change not, and because of that, you, O sons of Israel, are not consumed. Because I am a merciful and faithful God, I, I am faithful to my promises, and they will come to pass, despite your rebellion. And so we ought to fear God. And then notice chapter 4, verse 4. We have to trust God, which is expressed, I think, in our obedience. Chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And this goes back to what 
we talked about at the beginning, we need to trust God that His building will be beautiful. It, it looks as if it's in disarray now, but we're not God. We don't see the blueprints. We've never seen how His building has gone up. We've never seen a world created and and see sin come in and curse the world and, and then Jesus come to save the people from their sin and then to wipe it all out. We've never seen that happen before, so we simply have to trust Him. God's promises are not fulfilled overnight. They take time often. And our job is simply to believe what He has said. These commands that are at, in verse 4 in Horeb is really at, at Mount Sinai. It's the same place. Um, so obey what was in the law of Moses. He's telling the people. And what God will do for them when they obey and, and ultimately in His final plan is that He will bring clarity. He will help you to be able to see the line of distinction. That, that won't come in, in our lifetime, but it will come in the life to come. That promise of clarity is seen in chapter, thir- chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 3. We see the mercy of God in preserving His people. Verse 17, They will be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare My own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God is desiring, just as He has since the beginning of time, since the fall, to make His people His own, to make a a special possession of them so that He can live among them. And here He reiterates this promise that I am preparing My own possession. And then He's saying during this time, when, when this day of the Lord comes, verse 18, there will be an obvious distinction, verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. Now this, verse 18, is really a direct answer to their question, to their complaint. What benefit is it to serve you? Because there's no rewards falling on the righteous from their perspective, and there's no punishment falling on the wicked, so when are you going to fix all this mess? So God's saying, I am fixing it now. And it will be fixed in that day. There is a distinction even now, but you simply can't see it. You need to trust Me. One day, all people will see it though. All people will know the difference between those who serve God and those who don't. Chapter 4, verse 1, we see the purging of the wicked through the consuming fire of judgment. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave their, them neither root nor branch. The distinction, God says, there's going to be a distinction. Part of it will be seen in my judgment of the wicked. They will be consumed like chaff. Chaff is the, the, the part that was thrown up from the wheat. You throw up the wheat and the chaff would fly away in the wind. He's saying they, they are going to be nothing before me. But not only that, in in my treatment of the righteous, I'm going to purge the wicked and I'm going to protect the righteous, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. The day that's talked about here in verse 1, this day of the Lord, is it, it is the day of the Lord. It is the, the end times beginning with the tribulation going through the millennium. Uh, It will be a day of first judgment and then a day of blessing for God's people. And uh, before we um, 
before I make a comment on verse 2, I, I skipped over the end of verse 1, so that they will leave them neither root nor branch. The idea is that there will be nothing left of this, this tree. There will be neither root nor branch. There's nothing left. That's how much uh, God is going to consume them. They're, they're going to be um, consumed under the fire of God's wrath in the great and terrible day of the Lord. But he says he will protect the righteous. Those who fear my name. Notice the theme again there. Those who fear my name, who, which points back to uh, the end of chapter 3, which verse 16, it talks about those who fear me. He's looking for people who are going to obey him. Those who esteem his name and, and serve him and, and are righteous. For them, there will be healing. And these words at the beginning of verse 2 should ring in your ears, even this time of the year, because these words are used in the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Son, S-U-N. The Son of Righteousness. Um, light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. That's where that comes from, from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Now they take, that, the writers of that song, take it a little bit, uh, make it a little bit more specific probably than it was. I think God was leaving it more generic. That's why in your New American Standard, Son is not capitalized. It's simply speaking of a day in which Son is used as an object to show that, that Son will provide uh, both, I think, fire and, and judgment, heat, scorching heat for those who are wicked, but also warmth and healing to those who are righteous. Kind of given a dual image there for us. And in this Son, there will be healing in its wings. So it's not specifically referring to a person, but, but I think we can sing the song uh, with, with the same idea that Jesus Christ will be ultimately that Son of Righteousness, the One who will bring healing to us. And as a result, there will be joy at the end of the verse, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Think of uh, the calves who have just been well fed, being released from the stall. They skip around and and uh, and presumably we will be able to do the same sort of thing. We'll be just bursting with joy and energy because of what God has done for us. So we have both the purging of the wicked, verse one, and the and the uh, the purging of the wicked and the and the protection of the righteous. Now the means of this judgment, God goes back to it in verse three. You will, treat, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Again, it's referring to the day of the Lord. The wicked will be trampled underfoot of the, the, uh, the crushing blow of God's anger against them. And then he concludes here in the, in the book of Malachi, verses 5 and 6, the messenger who will bring clarity the messenger who will bring clarity. See at the beginning of verse 5, his identity. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Uh, this messenger is the uh, same messenger that was talked about in chapter 3, verse 1. It's referring to Elijah, the one who would precede Christ. And we know that this was not referring to, for the first coming of Jesus, this wasn't referring to the literal Elijah, that he would come back to dead, but rather it was John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We looked at that when we were looking at chapter 3. 
And just as Elijah came before Elisha, whose ministry was judgment and redemption, so another Elijah is going to come before Christ. He, he came before Christ, John the Baptist, coming with judgment and redemption. But also there's going to be another Elijah to come, as we read in Mark, um, Mark chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 17, that this other Elijah will come Perhaps it's the same idea that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. It could very well be that, that it's the actual Elijah coming as one of the two witnesses that you read about in Revelation. Uh, not exactly sure, but we know that someone will come as a messenger who will come before Jesus and his final coming. Um, the time of his coming is, we see at the end of verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This day of the Lord will be both great, uh, great in the sense of uh, awe-striking to those who view it. It will be great in the sense that, uh, that as believers we will take joy in that day because we will not be a part of the judgment. But it will also be a terrible day of the Lord. And so I think that's an appropriate way to to um, to think about that. And for the Jew, their day began when it became dark. So about 6 o'clock was the beginning of their day, their calendar day. And their evening, really, the, the end of their day was actually when it was still light. And so I think the the writers of Scripture are picking up on this Jewish day that, that it will begin with darkness, that is judgment, as, as the Scriptures often talk about darkness, as judgment, and then it will conclude with great light. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the end times. The, the tribulation will be that day of darkness. And then following that tribulation, battle of Armageddon, then you'll have the day of light, the millennium that will last for 1,000 years. His task is seen in verse 6, the task of this messenger who will bring clarity. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the heart... Uh, to, to their children and the hearts of their ch- the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Elijah's job was to warn of leveling judgments and announce the good news of the kingdom. He was to turn the hearts. This is not speaking of settling inner per- inner family conflicts. You know, the fathers that are disputing with their sons. He's going to settle all those conflicts. That's not the idea. The reconciliation here is talking about a whole society, a whole society of people being uh, brought back to God. That's what he's calling for in chapter 3, verse 7. This was the task of John the Baptist. Uh, And Luke chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that John really fulfilled this prophecy, that that in, in, in part he fulfilled it by being this messenger for our Lord. And that's why he is referred to, uh, or this passage is referred to when speaking of John the Baptist. The threat is at the very end of the, the verse, so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. So they should work hard to be faithful so that God would bless them. Now if you think about it, this, this uh, last portion of the Scriptures was a very profitable one for them because it helped them to see This was really the last piece of revelation that they received from God until Jesus came. And so their call or or their charge here was obey God, 
Trust God. He's going to finish the job. Don't worry. It looks as if it's in disarray, but God's going to get the job done. And, and, and believe in my promised Redeemer. Someone, I'm going to send my Son who will restore you to your children. And, and, and there won't be any need for worry at that time. The, the line of distinction between righteous and wicked, the wicked will be seen. A couple things I think we ought to uh, learn from this. Number one, don't be deceived in your service of God. Put away the cynical attitude that says, you know what, this, this service of God doesn't really do me any good. It's a big waste of time. It's a big waste of money. And I may be better off if I didn't do it. Nothing seems to be reciprocated back to me. It seems as if God's not paying attention to what I do for Him, so why bother? We need to trust that God is finishing the job that He started to, to make that line of distinction clear. And many of the rewards, we should understand, will not be received in this lifetime. Many of the rewards that we have promised as New Testament believers are, are prepared for us in heaven. And that's what we talked about uh, with regard to our giving, that, that what we're doing when we're giving to God is not so that our bank accounts can get, get bigger, but, but it is so that we're, we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that God never gives us anything good on this earth. And if we fail to see any of the good things, or all the good things that God gives us, then that shows a little bit of our cynical attitude. But, but we should recognize that He is giving us all sorts of blessings in this life, but it's not a one-for-one one exchange all the time. And, and it's going to be blurry. It's going to be difficult to understand the, the difference. So don't be deceived in your service for God or ever get that attitude where, God, what, what is the purpose of all this? Secondly, we, we should recognize that God will be vindicated when His Son comes in judgment. This line of distinction will be seen. God will be just and He will be seen to be just by all people. All people will know and they will bow the knee at this great God who is perfectly just. Thirdly, the line of distinction between believers and unbelievers will always be blurry as long as we live in a world that is cursed by sin. This line of distinction between the righteous and the wicked will always be blurry as long as we live in this world that is cursed by sin. It is a blind it has a blinding effect on us even as believers. We can't see all the things that God is doing. And so we we are tempted to question God. Let me have you turn to Matthew chapter 13 because I think this parable that Jesus gives is the, the parable that helps me to, to think clearly about these things. About this line of distinction. Because if, if I were to have it my way, I would, I, would, I would see an obvious distinction. But God has a different plan and, and God has the best plan and because of sin and its rebellion, uh, because our world is in rebellion against God, He has chosen to do it this way. Look at chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. 
But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you, know, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both, both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Do you understand the, the points of comparison here that Jesus is making? Okay, the wheat are believers. The, the Father has sown the seed of believers into the world, but the enemy, Satan, has come along and he sowed tares among the wheats. The wheat. And as a result, the, the, the line of distinction is, is blurry. It's hard to tell what the difference is between the wheat and the tares. And so if the slave owners were to go out and to uproot it, they'd make a big mess of the whole thing. And the owner says, just hold on. Okay? Just let them grow up all together. It's going to be hard to see the difference between the wheat and the tares, the righteous and the wicked. It's going to be hard to see. But at the end of time, we're going to gather them all up and we'll separate them into two piles. We'll put the tares in one pile and we'll put the, wicked, the, the wheat in the other pile. We'll take the tares and we'll burn them all up. Okay? The, the fire of judgment, do you see? and the wheat will be put into my barn. That is the time when we will be able to see that distinction. That line of distinction will not be clear until God sends His Son in judgment. But when that curse is reversed, when the curse of sin is reversed, the line of distinction will be clear to all, both the, the, the tares, the, the wicked, and, and the wheat, the righteous. So, that means that we should not become weary in following God. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke records for us Jesus Christ and His encouragement to the people that we need to think about the end. Keep the end in view and recognize chapter 6, verses 20-26. through 26. Recognize that God has promised blessing to those who are righteous. Chapter 6, verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. <clears throat> for in the same way, <clears throat> their fathers used to treat the prophets. Okay, so, so think about the, the, the people of Israel here at the end of Malachi who are saying, it's vain to serve you. Hey, we're, we're doing all these things. It seems like we're poor. We're, we're hungry. We're weeping now. We're doing all this mourning. And what Jesus is saying is, is don't worry about it. Okay? I've got it all planned. And your blessing will come. And you will leap for joy on that day. Look at verse 24. Notice the alternative. 
but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You think there's inequity now? The reason is is because you are too short-sighted. Don't become weary in doing good. But continue on in the faith and believe that God will vindicate His justice in the end and you will be rewarded if you trust in Christ. Is God faithful to His promises? Will God ever default on one of His promises to you? It may not happen when, on our time frame. It may not happen when we want it to, but God will follow through on His promises. He will fulfill them. He often does it in a slower uh, time frame than we would like. And it makes trusting God even harder. But we should learn from God's promises that, that, we, sh- that we are to trust in Him. And that's why the Christian life requires faith. If after every act of service you did, God immediately rewarded you, would you need any faith? No. Because on that day, we won't have faith anymore because our faith will be sight. The line of distinction will be clear. But we need faith now. And that's why we have to continue to trust in God. Our, our world lives by sight. They only see the here and now. They're only concerned about immediate rewards. And that's why a lot of their actions are, are based on whether or not they're going to get an immediate reward. They're not looking for the long term. Not, I'm not talking about the end of their life. I'm talking about long term and the life to come. And so when we're living that way, it doesn't seem like it's very rewarding. But God is saying it is rewarding. You just have to trust Me. God is faithful to His promises. Trust that He will follow through on them according to His good purposes. It is not vain to serve God. God has rewards stored up for you both now and for eternity if you will faithfully follow Him and believe that Christ is sufficient to provide this perfect distinction between the righteous and the, and the wicked. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we are amazed at Your plan. We don't understand it fully. Surely, it is difficult to to consider. And if it were up to us, uh, we would change things, but we're thankful that it is not. Thankful that You are slow to anger. Thankful that You were slow to anger with us. Thankful that You were gracious to us and You continue to be gracious. We pray that You'd help us not to get clouded by the sin of this world or by the uh, the frantic behavior that we easily get trapped into and start to follow after the, the people of this world and their desires and looking for near rewards, immediate rewards, and forget that we are living for another time, another place. Give us the grace to trust You. It can only happen when we receive Your grace. And so we pray that You'd help us to depend on You more and more. Forgive us for complaining to You. Forgive us for for charging uh, You with injustice. For claiming that it, it is in vanity that we serve You because 
we've, we only do that because we are sinful people and, and we beg for Your forgiveness. May you be honored in how we, we live our lives, how we trust You, show our trust by obeying You. Pray that each one of us would, would uh, take these truths, plant them deep in our heart, and, and encourage one another to follow through on trusting You, to never give up in the race of the Christian life, and to look forward to that finish line when Jesus Christ meets us and says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We can only receive those great words if the grace of God is sufficient for our, our journey. Give us grace, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.